0: Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5:13 through16: "You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, on a stand but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Nice to worship with you on this spring day. A little chilly yet for my comfort, but it was a nice walk here this morning. Hey, before we start, does anyone have a lozenge? Some sort of cough drop-ish kind of thing. No? <laughs> yeah. Well, the other part of the news is that I'm taking cold medicine. We remember the last time that that happened, so anything could happen today. <clears throat> Anyone have a cough drop or a lawsuit? Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll try not to click on it too much, okay? Uh, we We made it. We're in the f- part 14 of a 14 part series on relationships. Um, we have been following along with our home meetings. Our home meetings, Jeff mentioned, are the way to connect uh, and just care for one another, know and care for one another in the gospel here uh, at Liberty Fairmount. Life in the city can be very isolating. Vinny even said that uh, you know, ministry it gets lonely up there. That's true of any of us here in the city, and it takes effort. To love one another well in relationships, and so we've been studying what uh, what relationships are about out of the gospel. We've been studying what gets in the way of those relationships, and we've come to the the final part of our series um, where we talk about what the purpose of the gospel is for, and us moving out into relationship, not just with one another, but into the world, into our surroundings, into our community, into our neighborhood. I said, you know, that I've taken cold medicine again and so anything could happen. The reality is, is that anything could happen here because the Lord's spirit is here and he wants to touch you and he wants you to grow closer to him and he wants to know you more deeply and he wants through that for you to be able to relate well to one another and to those in the city who need the hope that you have. Or maybe you're sitting here today and you don't have hope. The Lord wants to connect with you and give you that hope. So let's pray and uh, get into our subject uh, this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you now through the work of your son Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our elder brother. Uh, We need your presence through your spirit. We need your help as we read your passage and as we pray through it together, as we think through it together and understand and hear your voice together. Lord, we need you, we need you so much, and we uh, ask that you would reveal more of your glory and more of your greatness and more of your love to us as we approach you through your word. Do that now through the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to tackle a subject today, a Christian's new life. New life comes through Jesus' work, and a Christian's new life is meant, this passage tells us, to give flavor To that which is tasteless in life. And also to give light to that which is dark in our world. Flavor to that which is tasteless in life and give light to that which is dark in our world. So we're going to look at three basic things. Verse 13 talks about salt of the earth. That you, if you know God through the gospel, you, Jesus says, are the salt of the earth. And then 14 through 16, you're the light of the world. He explains that in a couple of different ways. And then in verse 16, he also explains the purpose of his parables. He unpacks that for us. So this is um, Jesus preaching to us in his Sermon on the Mountain. What we're going to do is look at salt of the earth. You knew it was going to happen. I talk about cooking enough. You knew that I was going to find a passage where Jesus talks about cooking too. So I'm just going to run with that and enjoy it. We're talking about the flavor of food. Uh, in, in the, there's a famous French encyclopedia of cooking. I don't speak French, <laughs> but I have this encyclopedia in the translation of English. It's uh, La Russe Gastronomique, and it's, uh, here's what it says about salt. Since ancient times, salt has been a precious commodity. The Hebrews used it in sacrifices and ceremonies. Homer described nations as, the, as poor when they did not mix salt with their food. Salt is often a symbol of friendship and hospitality, and in some countries is still traditionally offered with bread to strangers. The Romans used salt to preserve fish, olives, cheese, and meat, and it formed part of a soldier's wages, hence the etymology of word salary. Uh, The function of salt, the encyclopedia writes, is to enhance the flavor of food, to bring out the taste, and to stimulate the appetite. Now, in cooking, uh, one of the things... If you, if you just cook for basic sort of maintenance and food is fuel for you, just check out. Don't listen to this next part. Um, come, I'll, I'll tell you to come back in a few minutes, okay? Um, the reality is is the iodized table salt that you get in the grocery store is the worst thing to cook with. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> um Instead, there are boxes of kosher salt. The, the, the encyclopedia says that there are two basic forms of salt, that, that comes from the sea and then rock salt that's found in the earth. And um, there are various versions of that. And kosher salt is, I, I think it comes from sea salt, but uh, the way that it, it's processed makes it into these fine little, they're fine little flakes, but they're big enough to grab, and you don't oversalt your food, and it's a particular taste. It's really wonderful. And so one of the things you do to prepare food and cooking is you uh, you use kosher salt, and you take I have a I have a little ramekin of it next to my uh, the burners on my oven and my pepper grinder, and uh, I just grab some of that kosher salt and I'll salt and pepper meat before I cook it, or I'll salt and taste as I go to make sure there's not too much, the balance is right. But it's really easy to keep good balance with a, with the kosher salt, so it's a great thing to use in cooking. There's something called gray salt. I told you a couple minutes. I'll call you back. There's something called gray salt, which is sea salt, but it's from the marshlands of France. And the way, it actually is gray in color. And what you can do is if you have a nice piece of meat and you slice that on the plate, you can take that gray salt and just crumble it over the finished pieces of meat. And wow, I, we had cooking. We had um, mini courses last summer for ways to connect when the small groups took off for the summer and I had Italian cooking at my house. And I actually open up these salts for people to taste the difference. Difference, right? Yeah? Okay. So there's a lot of wonder and a lot of flavor that can come from the proper use of salt. Of course, Jesus is using a parable to teach the crowds and his disciples here. So what does he mean when he says, you are the salt of the earth? You're the salt of the earth. Well, there are some sets of clues. By the way, if you tuned out, come back. We're on track now. Uh, you're the salt of the earth. The, the thing about the Bible and the gospels is it's connected to this giant story. There's a redemptive story that, that, that runs all throughout the Bible. And if you're new to Christianity or you haven't learned your Bible very much, it's hard. It's like a very big mansion. There's a lot of rooms, a lot of corridors, a lot of hallways. It takes a long time to know where all of those rooms are, where all the hallways go. And, and so what we're going to try to do with these first two analogies, is try to alert you to the depth of, of the space that we're, we're covering. There's a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to try to do it as best we can, but you realize there's just so much to redemptive history. And we find some clues to that in the Bible and Job with regards to Saul. Job 6.6, Job's suffering. He's suffering. Everything has been taken from him. And he's, he's working out his faith in God. And his friend, his first friend comes to him and says, maybe this is your fault. Have you ever said that to somebody in suffering? It's really, it's not the most encouraging approach to take. Let me just say that out front. Uh, so Job is suffering, and he likens his suffering to not being able to eat that which is tasteless without salt. He says, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? And he has sort of a, a a list, an ongoing list of things that he likens his suffering to. And so here are these words of his friend coming at him, and they're impugning it. They're, they're, they're like they're trying to impute him with fault. And he's saying, Look, these tasteless things in my life, I, I can't eat them without salt. What's he talking about? One of the things happens later uh, is that. Paul in Colossians uh, says this: so Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, putting your knowledge of the gospel to good use, is what he means. Making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So there's something about our words in the midst of suffering that we find as part of the clue in these long corridors of the redemptive history of Scripture. I remember when I was. Um, you know, easing another suffering through encouraging use of words or just presence. I remember being with my grandfather. My grandfather died. He had, uh, he had, uh, what is the, uh, sorry, my mind just went blank. What's the disease that Muhammad Ali suffers from? Parkinson's. Right. Parkinson's. So he had Parkinson's. And so his presence inside, but his body was shutting down. And so I went for the final week of his life and I sat with him for many hours. He couldn't talk a lot, but he could still acknowledge some things. And, um, I just sat and held his hand often. And sometimes after an hour or so, I would get up to, to go get a drink. And as I pulled away, he would grip my hand saying, no, this is important. Stay right. Or I would play guitar for him. And, uh, when, when I would get up to go do something else, he would reach out his hand to say, no, that I want more. My, you know, my dog Sam does that. He can't communicate with words. But if I'm scratching his, you know, scratching here and he's like, oh yeah, that's good. And then I stop, he'll put his pop on my lap saying, more, you know, that's, that's his symbol for more. So there's something about being salt in the midst of suffering that's important. Gracious speech flavorless, you know, seasoned with salt, Paul is talking about the idea that you let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer a person. You have to understand that flavorless is, is is the regular order of life. People are suffering around you. You're suffering. I know, I hear it, you tell me. There's a lot that's going wrong. One of the, the new series that we're going to move into uh, next week is how to live right, meaning how to live out of the gospel when things are going wrong. So this is a prevalent thing. There's flavorless life out there. And it takes wisdom. You know, you can't... The Bible talks about how you have to answer... Like if, sometimes You don't sing songs to a heavy heart, Proverbs tell us. Right? And so there are people who use way too much salt... When somebody's suffering, and needs encouragement, so you can't use way too much. In cooking, you've actually got to taste. You got to add a little bit at a time. You got to taste it as you go to make sure that it does. Because when you overload it with salt, it's inedible. You can't do it. And when you bring too much, you say, "No, just be happy, be joyful in the Lord." Woo! And somebody's really down. It it's too much, and it overpowers them. And it it it's not only it's still tasteless, but in a way that you can't eat it. Right. Too much salt. But you have to know just how much. Not enough is not good either. Food is flavorless. You can have the best cut of meat, and you can cook it perfectly, and you can let it rest for 10 minutes, and it relaxes, and you put it on your plate. And if you haven't seasoned it properly, I'm telling you the taste is not as it should be. You'll know that when you taste it that way. So you need just enough salt to make a difference, to bring flavor. That's going to take wisdom. Wisdom means taking your knowledge of the gospel and putting it into good use. There's a companion book, uh, in our companion book that, that the leaders have been using as a resource as we follow along together in our home meetings, there's a story about a young couple, newly married, they move in t- into this apartment complex, and they're fighting. They're fighting all the time, like all hours, they're yelling, they can't, everything's going wrong. And there was a, a fight that was happening, and the older couple next door came and knocked and said, hey, we heard that you're having a tough time, can we help out? And so they said, Sure. And that couple, that older couple, took the younger couple under their wings and started to let them in and said, look, this is not unique to you. We struggle with this too, but there's a different way to handle it because we have hope in Jesus. So let's talk about that. Let's work through those things together. And it was just enough salt for them. Read about it in the, in the resource. It's helpful. All right, so that was the first set of clues. The second set of clues, and you wouldn't wouldn't know this unless you know the quarters of Scripture. Did you know there's a covenant of salt in the Scripture? I remember that Steve Smallman went through the covenants of Scripture. Did he tackle the covenant of salt? I don't think so. He didn't do it, right? All right, there's a covenant of salt in Scripture. Listen to some of these verses. Leviticus 2. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant of your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Or Numbers 18. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your offspring with you. Or 2 Chronicles 13. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by what? By a covenant of salt. What is that? That's a strange thing, right? Jesus is pulling from this, I believe, as I, as I work with the text and think about redemptive history. I think he's pulling of this mainly as he talks to us about being the salt of the earth. What the covenant of salt means and refers to is that the relationship that cannot be pulled apart, not be separated between God and his people. We've talked before about the steadfast love of God. Uh, I had occasion this week to remember Dwayne Davis preaching on Romans 8, as we covered Romans 8 last week, and he talked about a... um, there was a minivan that he had and there was a decal sticker on the window and it it baked in the sun through the summer heat and he tried to scrape it off and he couldn't, And he had a razor blade and he's scraping and he couldn't get it off and he was so frustrated and it dawned on him. That's how sticky God's love is for us. We can't separate ourselves from it. And I remember the laughter uh, in that sermon because he was joyful and he was discovering that and we were discovering that too. The covenant of salt refers to the relationship between God and his people that can't be taken away. Now, uh, here's what one commentator writes. As salt was regarded as a necessary ingredient of the daily food, and so all sacrifices offered to Yahweh, it became an easy step to the very close connection between salt and covenant making. Also, when men ate together, they became friends. The Arabic expression, there is salt between us, means he has eaten my salt, which means partaking of hospitality, which cemented friendship. Eat the salt of the palace. We read in Ezra four fourteen. Covenants were generally confirmed by sacrificial meals, and salt was always present. Now, the commentator goes on to write: Since too, salt is a preservative, it would easily become a uh, symbolic of an enduring covenant. So offerings to Yahweh were to be a statute forever, a covenant of salt forever before the Lord. David received his kingdom forever from the Lord by a covenant of salt. And in light of these conceptions, the remark of our Lord becomes the more significant. And this is the parallel passage to our Matthew passage in Mark 9. The Lord says, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The kingdom, the kingdom received forever by salt. By salt. It's the salt of the Lord's covenant of grace to us that we are to have in ourselves. The salt of the Lord's covenant of grace to us that we are to have in ourselves. And it's that covenant of grace that gives us peace with one another. And as we'll see, it's that covenant of grace that we are to flavor the things that are not flavorful in life. The things that are tasteless. The things that are needing flavor. It's that same covenant of grace. So Jesus is talking about the covenant of salt because he is our salt. He who is the taste in our tastelessness, right? Now, what happens when there's no taste? Jesus talks about it here in verse 13. What happens when there's no t- taste? Okay, those of you who cook uh, for fuel, don't go away again for a second. Um, when you cook pasta... You might not know this, but when you cook pasta, do you know what you have to do with the water? You have to salt it. And you have to salt it to such an extent that it tastes like the Atlantic Ocean. Did you know that? Why? Because if you're spending good time on making a really greatly balanced sauce and the salt content has grown through your cooking of it and the ingredients of the, of the sauce are chemically changing and the salt is taking part in all of that and you're doing all of that and you don't salt your pasta water, when that pasta hits that sauce, it sucks all the salt out of it. If it's not salted, the pasta's not salted itself through its own process, when it hits that beautifully balanced sauce, all of the balance of the sauce is taken out, and it tastes bland. And you're like, wait a minute, this tastes so good, what happened? But if you salt the pasta first, when it hits that sauce, boom! Boom! It's wonder in your mouth, right? And a great thing for your relationships as you have uh, uh, friendships around the table as you're enjoying it together. That's exactly what's going on here. If you don't salt yourself first with Jesus and his grace, when you go out into the the world, your sauce as it were, you're going to not only not bring balance to it, but you're going to suck the life out of it. But if you first salt yourself with Jesus and his gospel and his effort on your behalf and how much he loves you and his covenant of salt and how steadfast that is for you and that it can never be taken away and that's your resource, that you're salted first, when you go into a relationship, it changes things. You're complimenting people. You're encouraging them in their suffering. You become the salt of the earth, right? He says, though, if you're not salting with himself and the salt of his covenant, that there's no way to restore saltiness. I find that's true when cooking, right? There's no way to fix the sauce if the pasta hits it and sucks all, this, all the life out of it. There's no way to go back and do it. It's done. You have to recook. It's a terrible labor. He says that salt that's lost its saltiness is good for nothing, subject to the paths of others. Friends, you need to be salted with Jesus first. Do your own salting. Go to the Lord in his grace and be salted first so that you can go out into the world. There's more to say on salt, but I'm going to move on to the light of the world. Thank you for bearing with me. Jesus talks about cooking. I have to, I have to throw it in there. Uh, the second thing that he talks about in verses 14 through 16 is your light of the world, okay? your are light of the world. And this is going to be... Um, we're just going to have to travel with the experts here because there's so much richness in biblical uh, theology and redemptive historical theology that I'm just going to alert you to it. I'm going to alert you to it. And I'll give you some resources. One of the things we'll draw from is Meredith Klein's Kingdom Prologue. You can get that. You can get that online in a PDF, actually, but he also has the book. Is, Meredith is no longer living. But it's, it's a fantastic scope of what the city, what role the city plays in our life as those who've been saved and loved by the gospel. Now, city set on a hill. What's going on? There's huge references in the backdrop that we're not alerted to. We need to be alerted to. Uh, Klein calls it the megapolis or metopolis. Really, mega-polis, right? Mega-city. And then metapolis, meta, like over everything. Augustine called the city man and the city of God. The image of the city in the Bible is dual, not uniform. And whether we use Augustine's designation of the city of God or city of man or Klein's corresponding terms, metopolis or megapolis, the distinction is one of future destiny and life in the present. And so what I'm going to do is go on to quote some pieces of Klein here, again, just to alert you to the massive scope of the city in in redemptive history. Klein writes, Fulfillment of man's cultural stewardship would thus begin with man functioning as a princely gardener in Eden. But the goal, the goal of his kingdom commission was not some minimal local life support system. It was rather maximal global mastery. Now, you've got to keep in mind that Klein's writing before sin enters the world. This is in um, the, the mandate to go out and subdue the earth, this cultural mandate that human beings were given by virtue of who they were created to be. All right, So we're going out. It's before sin. He says, The cultural mandate put all the capacity of the human brain and brawn to work in a challenging and rewarding world to develop the original paradise home, get this, into a universal city. The kingdom city, such as the picture that emerges when the design of all that is envisaged uh, in the assignments of procreation and royal labor is pieced together. The citizens of the city would come into their being through the process of procreation. Its physical architectural form would take shape as a product of man's cultural endeavors. And the government dimension of the city was provided for the community authority structure that was appointed as a further creation ordinance." And this element, he writes, still must be taken up. The kingdom city is the aggregate and synthesis of the creational ordinances that define man's cultural commission. Write this down. Write this down, this next line. Because it's important. Klein writes, The city is mankind culturally formed. Mankind culturally formed. Now, I've talk, I'm, segue for a second. I've talked to a lot of you about, okay, we believe the gospel, but what does that have to do with my workplace or my studies or, or the way that I just live in the day-to-day? There is much to cover. And we can't do it here. And in fact, I've been trying to think about when we can we bring it in into the life of our church. And I think probably winter, 2013, 2014, we'll go through a series on the gospel and workplace and what it means to do whatever your vocation, whatever your calling is, out of distinctiveness of the gospel. It was actually part of the created order. Did you know that? Work is not bad. But because of the fall, and we'll get to that, Klein gets to that. He says... uh, before we get to the fall, he says human history would proceed by the way of development by the Megapolis and thence to the metropolis of the consummation. Human culture would take city form. This was inevitable because the city is nothing but the synthesis of the several elements already present in the cultural program that man was directed to carry out. He alerts you to what this is. He says, look, the couple in the garden was to multiply, so providing the citizens of the city... He says, their cultivation of the earth's resources as they extended their control over uh, their territorial environment through fabrication of sheltering structures would produce the physical architecture of the city. Right? The authority structure of the human family engaged in the cultural process would constitute the centralized government by which the life and functioning of the city would be organized under God. The cultural mandate given at creation was thus a mandate to build the city, and it would be through the blessing of God on man's faithfulness in the covenanted tasks that the construction of the city would then be completed. Whether then we examine the creational order from the perspective of the covenant stipulations or the perspective of its blessing sanctions, the city comes into view. It's the sum of man's endeavors and the shape of his hope. Did you know that the Bible spoke that positively of the city? Some of you have grown up in contexts in the suburbs where it's much more desirable, you've been taught, to be in out out of the city, in nature, I just want you to know that there's richness to our redemptive story that the gospel catches us up in that that means that it wasn't originally bad. And so then there's a clue. What does the gospel mean to our living out of the sense of the new city that we have coming to us? We're going to get to that. Uh, Klein goes on to say, It was therefore plainly an act of grace and mercy when, after man and Adam had broken faith and covenant, God again pointed a city structure for the benefit of the generality of mankind. This city would not be the same city the Lord established at the beginning. The city that fallen man would build would be a common city, temporal, profane, and it would exist under the shadow of the common curse. Nevertheless, that mankind in general should in measure be fruitful and their work productive, that they should not be abandoned to the chaotic lawlessness, that there should still be an urban structuring of man's historical existence. This was indeed a good gift of the Creator's common grace. Again, that's Meredith Klein, Kingdom Prologue, page 163 and 64. I drew from another place there. I forgot to give you the page numbers, but it's, it's a fantastic work. Now, here's the thing. Still, God's people throughout redemptive history held hopes of the eternal city that God would one day bring. Throughout redemptive history, God's people have hope. Part of their hope is centered on he will one day bring this eternal city that was supposed to be begun in the garden before sin and brought to fruition, right? But a significant difference distinguishes the New Testament believers from the Old Testament counterparts. Of the latter, we are told, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. You can read that in Hebrews 11. But while the Christian is to continue in this alien mode, we'll explain that more in a second. There's there's a sense in which we're citizens of Philadelphia, but we're also aliens of Philadelphia, and those two combine in the gospel. We'll explain that in a moment. While the Christian is to continue in this alien mode until consummation, in a very profound and real sense, the pilgrimage has ended because Christ's atoning work, Ephesians 2, through the persevering substitutionary faithfulness of Jesus, Christians have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what the scripture authors tell us, the New Testament writer of Hebrews. So while the geopolitical manifestation of God's city is yet future, it has been eternally established in the heavens through Jesus' work, and believers in Jesus have already taken up residence there through union with him. Therefore, the Church of Jesus lives in the world now as god's holy city set on a hill. You see you see how this has been traveling we're representing through our very life here in Philadelphia the nature, the characteristics, the justice the mercy all of the wonders of God's holy city, and we're doing it through the way that we live. He says, you are the city set on the hill. You are the place where humanity gathers and wraps together against the forces of of chaos. You are. You are to be an alternate city, we're told. Augustine described it like this. The humble city is the society of holy men and women and good angels The proud city is the society of wicked men and women and evil angels. The one city began with the love of God. The other had its beginnings in the love of self. Now what does he say about us as a city? He says, your city set on the hill, what does he say about it? He says it's unhideable. If you live out of the covenant of salt, out of his grace to you, it's unhideable Uh, in light of the complex nature that makes up the image of the city in the Bible, the Christian life has certain characteristics to display. This is what it's to look like when you live out of grace. Listen. First, the Christian is a citizen of God's city through righteousness based on faith, not on works of the law. By analogy, Paul compares these two outlooks to the Jerusalem above and the present Jerusalem. You can read about that in Galatians 4 and Philippians 3. People who attempt on their own to justify themselves before God are citizens of the earthly city. Well, those who look to Christ in faith are citizens of the former. You know, you know yourself that you struggle with trying to be right with people and trying to be right with God. And you carry a sense of weight and, and condemnation and guilt and shame that's hard to erode. It's hard to go away and yet you have the resources in the gospel to say you are not condemned. You have every reason for living out of hope. And as you do that, you come to your the people around you who are suffering, who have no hope, and you're a light to them, and you're grace to them, and you're God's character to them. We say in the Liberty Network that we live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in our neighborhood. That's part of the wonder of being his, his heavenly city and showing that forth. So we... Um, are citizens of God's city through righteousness based on faith. Not something that we earn. We know that it's by grace. We know that God had to die for us because we're sinful. And yet we rejoice because he did die for us. And it's certain. It's finished. His work is finished for us. So second, the second mark of the Christian life in the city is respect for human government as God's provisional source of order since the fall and prior to consummation. Therefore, what's that mean? It means, as a believer, you to live like Joseph or Daniel in relating to the surrounding world. Listen to what... Here's an ancient letter, right? An ancient letter of Diognetus. And he was writing a defense of Christianity. And he describes Christians as those who... And this is a quote from Diognetus. "...dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear the share of all responsibilities as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers." Every foreign country is a homeland to them, and every homeland is foreign. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. It means investing. It means rooting down. It means buying houses and planting gardens and taking part of the fabric of life in our great city, Philadelphia, that's hurting so. You can be salt, and you can be light, and it means owning it in that way. But the third thing, the third characteristic of life in the city, a life of faith, is to be a life of confidence in God's promise to establish his city. Hebrews speaks of the faith by which Abraham sojourned in the land of promise as a foreign land living in tents. And then Hebrews' author says this, For he looked forward to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Heavenly citizenship is the ground of confidence in this life's trials, the goal towards which life is directed. But we also see that we're not just a city on the hill. Jesus talks about heavenly home when he talks about the the lighted lamp. In John 14, 1-3, Jesus says this, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and also believe in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, uh, with myself that there you may be where I am also. He talks about a lighted lamp on the stand and he gives the analogy of a home. He says... It gives light to all the house, all in the house, all right? There's a, there's a famous passage of scripture that says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? How are we to see one another if we're not knowing the gospel together? One of the reasons we have home meetings is that we can remind each other because we're forgetful. I had a chance to drive home with Jay Barbieri from a, a Presbytery retreat, my fourth retreat in the month. Can you believe it? I need a retreat from retreats. Uh, But Jay and I uh, have this conversational pattern where we gravitate towards grace in our conversation together. And we, we always remark to one another as we talk and have these conversations that that is so needed. I need that reminder. I forget. Here are the ways that I'm forgetting. Will you pray for me so that I don't forget in those ways again? That's part of what it means, that we've got to do that together. It gives light to the whole house. It's not just light to one another, but right relationship with God based on grace through faith, living as citizens of the city, although still sojourners, and confidence in God's establishing a city, the ground of confidence in our trials. But it's also, Jesus says here, that it's for all those who will enter. In other words, why do we need to pay attention to the gospel ourselves? Why do we need the light of his word, lighting our way and showing the way that we should walk forward and live life? Because there are others who are going to come in and they need to see their way around the house and we need to be able to show them. It giving light to all in God's house and to those who enter. Well, last, so we have, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world and lastly, Jesus in his teaching explains this parable for us. Aren't you glad when a preacher explains <laughs> the mysteries of what he's saying? So Jesus does that for us here and uh, he says in the same way, Okay. In the same way, be salt of the earth. Let your light shine before others. You have the presence of Jesus. Let that give flavor to the flavorless. Let that give flavor to the flavorless. There's some great questions in the corresponding book that the home leaders have been reading. Here are some of the questions to think about as you go out into the world and think about how to be salt and giving flavor to what's flavorless around you. All right, you ready? Is there a struggling family in your neighborhood? Is there a single parent that you know? Is there someone here at Fairmount who is lonely and discouraged? Is there a teenager in your neighborhood who needs to see how healthy relationships function? Where are the needs for service and mercy and help right where you live? Where are the needs? Has God put an elderly person in your life who needs companionship? Where are the poor where you live? How can you be a part of their lives? Go be salt. Give some serious consideration, not just as an individual, but together with your home meeting. And think about how you can do that together and join arms together. There's strength in numbers. And if we come at the situations that we see around us that are so flavorless with the strength of one another, think of how wonderful that combination will be, how flavorful it will be in Jesus working through numbers to, to ease the burden of others through hope in him. But it also gives light to that which is darkened, okay? Here are some questions to help think through that. Light invites. You can't see where you're going. You're going to stumble. You're going to hit the nightstand. Right? Light gives light so you don't hit the nightstand. You don't stumble around the house. You know exactly where you're going. Is there a coworker that you can invite for dinner and a movie with your friends? Do you know an elderly person who would love and enjoy a family during the holidays who is otherwise alone? Is there someone who is burdened or in crisis and really needs some vacation time? Just some time away. Is there another family who would enjoy time with your family? Do you know a younger couple who could be mentored by an older couple? In your singleness, is there a family with young children who would benefit from your help? How might this bless you as well? So we can be light to the household, not only for those who are inside, but those who are outside who need a place to come into. We show Jesus that way. Jesus says, All of this is so that they may see your good works. What does that mean? He says that that you follow me. Your lifestyle shows the glory of the Father. That you're not walking in darkness. Okay? That you're not walking in darkness. You're not in a lifestyle that tries to glorify yourself. And that you're the light of life. Not in the shadow of sin and death. They have no power over you anymore if you come to God through Jesus. Why? Jeff said it as we were worshiping. He has had victory over sin and death on your behalf. He's destroyed it. He's gone right through it and out the other side. And he comes through his spirit to live in you now and gives you hope and testifies to your heart that you're his child. And you have every right in this kingdom as he does. That's a powerful promise. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You have to see, friends, that Jesus' work was good And he did his good work so that giving glory to God in that good work, you could call God your father. Why? Because on the cross, his father turned the face away. We sing about that sometimes in one of our hymns. The father turns his face away, right? On the cross, Jesus went through that so that you could call him father who is in heaven, right? Jesus went through the permanent judgment of hell on the cross, Permanent condemnation, permanent separation, and all the way to permanent separation on the cross, so that you're being a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom, you're having a room in that many rooms place that He describes is secure. It can't be taken from you. It's now permanently true of you. Jesus is your salt, Jesus is your light. And he's the reason you can go out into our community together and into our neighborhoods together and into our city together to be salt and light and life. It's his life. It's his light. It's his flavor that you extend. Why? Because he's given grace to you. And you have enough to give to others in that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you um, have given us your only son, that you, Lord Jesus, stood your ground. You did not... um, turn away, and that you faced the condemnation that we deserved, and yet you broke through the power of sin and death through your resurrection, you ascended into heaven, you intercede for us even now, so that uh, you send your spirit to testify with our hearts that we are your children, if we believe in your work on our behalf. Father, this means something to the way that we live our lives together with one another in relationship, and in our relationship all throughout the city and all throughout our vocation and our education, and wherever we touch, your salt and your light is meant to be shown through us, giving taste to that which is flavorless, giving the hope and light and clarity of your love to that which is darkened and despairing. Lord, let us be that, not only individually, but together, through the the miraculous love and power of your grace, we ask in Jesus' name.